Well, a pleasant good evening to you again. And it's wonderful to see such a good group of you again tonight. And I'm very excited about our message for this evening, where we are going to take a look at the big picture of, of Revelation. So before we do that, I would just like to have a brief word of prayer and we will get right into our message. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here this evening. I pray that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and that we would be convicted of the message for our time and that we would make changes in our lives to fit according to the time in which we live in. So be with me now. May Christ be lifted up. May I be lost sight of. And may you bless each one of us here this evening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, last night we did an overview of the book of Daniel, and we saw that there are four prophetic visions in Daniel which describe the same kingdoms. And at the end of those four visions, in the, at the end of the first one, you have the second coming with a stone striking the image. At the end of the fourth one, you have Michael standing up, which is at the close of probation, just before Jesus comes. But in the middle two visions, you have the beginning of the judgment and the beginning of the cleansing of the sanctuary, which we saw began in 1844, which shows us that in order to get to the second coming, after the end of the four kingdoms, there must be a judgment and a cleansing of a sanctuary that will usher in the second coming of Jesus. And when Christ has a cleansed sanctuary, he will come back a second time. So in a nutshell, that's what we studied last night. Now, tonight, we are going to study the book of Revelation, and we are going to see some of the big picture themes in this book as well. As I did last night, I'm going to read just a couple of quotes from the book Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, which describes the importance of the book of Revelation. Now, this is page 114. Ellen White says, The things revealed to Daniel were afterward complemented by the revelation made to John on the Isle of Patmos. So you see what she says there? Revelation complements the book of Daniel. So what we saw last night will be complemented by the book of Revelation, which gives more detail, detail. And now, one other quote, and then we'll get right into our message. This is page 116 of Testimonies to Ministers. The last book of the New Testament scriptures is full of truth that we need to understand. Satan has blinded the minds of many so that they have been glad of any excuse for not making revelation their study. But Christ, through his servant John, has here declared what shall be in the last days, and he says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. So there is a special blessing for those who not only read this prophecy, who not only hear it, but who keep the words of this prophecy. 
You see, as God's last day people, we are intended by God to have a special understanding of this book so that we will live our lives accordingly in preparation for Jesus to come. And inspiration tells us there is a special blessing when we study and keep the words of this book. Amen? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's study Revelation. Amen? You know, when you look at the book of Revelation, just as you look at, at the name of the book of Daniel, the name itself is descriptive of what the book is about. Now, when we look at our Bibles, we'll see, okay, I'm in the book of Revelation, and you'll see Revelation 1, 2, 3, and on, and, and that's what you think of. You think of Revelation. But you know, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 specifically says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Really, the title of this book should be the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you come away from your study of the book of Revelation and you haven't seen Jesus, that might just suggest that you aren't studying the book correctly. Again, this book is much more than about beasts and horns. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, how does the book of Revelation reveal Jesus Christ to us in these last days? When we look at the book of Revelation, we see that it has some similarities to the book of Daniel, but it also has a slightly different structure. And it's interesting, if you come to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 starts to reveal more to us about Jesus Christ. So notice Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Here we read, And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now you can see four descriptive titles of Jesus here in this verse. He's the faithful witness. He's the first begotten of the dead. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. And because he washed us from our sins in his own blood, that also makes him our savior. Amen? Now, here's what's interesting. Specifically, the first three titles are used by Jesus Christ to reveal himself in the book of Revelation as we move forward. And this is where things get interesting to me. In the book of Revelation, you have, in the first half of the book, what we call three sevens. Seven churches, seven seals, and seven trumpets. You've all heard of the seven churches, seals, and trumpets? Okay. Now, what is fascinating is that in the three titles in verse 5 of chapter 1, you get an idea of what Jesus is doing in each one of those instances. For example, in the seven churches, when you come to the last church, the Laodicean church, the message to them starts off in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, from the faithful and true witness, who is Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus is the faithful and true witness in the seven churches. Then when you come to the seven seals, you find that the seven seals describe many martyrs for God. And so they have the promise that, look, Jesus was raised from the dead. He's the first begotten of the dead, so that even though you died because Jesus was resurrected, you have the promise of being resurrected. And then when you come to the seven trumpets, you see that Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth because when the seventh trumpet sounds in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we read that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Or in other words, he is the prince of the kings of this earth. So in the seven churches, in the seven seals, and in the seven trumpets, Jesus Christ is revealing himself. He is the faithful witness telling the churches of their true condition. He's the first begotten of the dead telling those who have been martyrs for the faith, don't worry, I was resurrected and you will be too. And in the seven trumpets, as you see the kingdoms of this earth striving for supremacy, Christ says, hey, when it's all said and done, I am king of kings and lord of lords. Now that's the first layer of these three sevens that we're looking at. The next thing that we see, and this is really looking specifically at the first half of the book of Revelation, is we see that Yes, these three sevens, the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets, they describe what's happening here on this earth during seven periods of history. But they also describe what Jesus is doing in the sanctuary in heaven. So the sanctuary message, which is described in Daniel 8, 14, is also seen in the book of Revelation, specifically... In Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, you see Jesus walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Now the candlesticks, each one of them, are describing one of the seven churches. Now, when you look at the sanctuary message, and how many of you have studied the articles in the sanctuary? So you have the outer court where the sacrifice took place, and then in the holy place there were three articles, right? the seven candlesticks, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. And then in the most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. Well, here we find at the beginning of the seven churches, Jesus is walking in the midst of the candlesticks. So where does that place him in the sanctuary? That puts him in the holy place. And then in Revelation 4, which is right before the seven seals, or it's the introduction to the seven seals, when you look in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, it says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire before the throne. Here again you see the seven candlesticks. So as you come to the seven seals, where do we find Jesus in the sanctuary? He again is in the holy place. Then as you, as you come to the beginning of the trumpets in Revelation chapter 8, 
Notice verse 3, it says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So when you come to the beginning of the seven trumpets, where is Jesus in heaven? He is still in the holy place. But when you come to the end of the seven trumpets in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, notice what happens. Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. And we read, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in His temple the ark of His testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now, what do you see when the temple of God was open in heaven? And by the way, the temple of God would re represent the heavenly sanctuary. So when it was open, as the, and this is when the seventh trumpet is sounding, what do you see in the sanctuary in heaven? The Ark of the Testament. And where was that? That was in the most holy place. So when we come to the sounding of the seventh trumpet, where does that place us in history? That places us in history when Jesus went to the most holy place at the beginning of the cleansing of the sanctuary, which we saw last night, began in 1844. So when you look at the first half of the book of Revelation, Jesus in heaven is in the holy place as our high priest. He's with the seven candlesticks. He's with the altar of incense. But then, when the seventh trumpet sounds, he goes into the most holy place, and that tells us that that began in 1844. So, that's what Jesus is doing in heaven in the first half of this book. Now let's look a little bit further at the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. When you study the, the seven churches, for example, very carefully, yes, those were seven churches in the first century, at, around the time Christ died in 31 AD and ascended to heaven, and these seven churches were raised up as Christian churches after that time. But they also represent periods of time all the way till the coming of Christ. And specifically, what I'm going to focus in on now with, this, with the church's seals and, the, and trumpets are the seventh church, the seventh seal, and the seventh trumpet. So when you come to the seventh church, this is the Laodicean church, and we're going to go through the entire message on Friday night. You will want to be here. And as we studied last night, Laodicea, the name itself, means a judged people. So this is the church of the judgment hour. So just as when the seventh trumpet announces Jesus going into the most holy place to begin his work of cleansing the sanctuary, the seventh church announces that the judgment is beginning. So the, the Laodicean church the seventh church also shows that this is 1844 onward. Now, this is where things become somewhat perplexing 
when we study this book. Because the Laodicean church represents God's judgment hour church just before Jesus comes. And when you study this judgment hour church, it is the one church of the seven that does not receive any commendation from Christ. All the other six churches say, hey, you're doing this well at least, but you have these problems. There's two churches that actually don't get any rebuke at all. That's, um, and we'll talk, we can talk about that later. But specifically, Laodicea is the only church that receives a rebuke with no praise or commendation from Christ. And yet this is the church of the judgment hour that God has raised up to be ready to meet Jesus in the clouds. And we come to the end of the seven churches and we say this church is described as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And yet this is the church of the judgment hour. How are God's people going to be ready for Jesus to come if this is our condition? And we're going to talk about that in more detail Friday night. You won't want to miss that. So you come to the end of the seven churches and there's this unanswered question left hanging over your head. This is the condition of God's church before Jesus comes? What's going to happen? Isn't that a good question to ask? We are the Laodicean church. That is us. And we are in this condition that is described as being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And we are the church of the judgment hour being given an account by the faithful and true witness. So we leave the seven churches and we walk away from that and we say, whoa, that doesn't sound so good about God's last eight people. Then we come to the seven seals and you go down through history you come to the end of the sixth seal, which where we are in history right now, verses 12 and 13, you see at the beginning of the sixth seal, there's this great earthquake. That's the Lisbon earthquake of 1755. The sun becomes dark and the moon becomes as blood. That was the dark day of May 19, 1780. And then in verse 13, you see that the stars fall from heaven. This occurred in history on November 13, 1833. And then the very next event to take place is the second coming. And between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, in chapter seven, you have a description of the group known as the 144,000. So here's what becomes fascinating. Laodicean church, the seventh church, God's church of the judgment hour, it's in a terrible condition. But then when we come to the end of the seals, God reveals to us, hey, guess what? The 144,000 come from the Laodicean church. Have mercy. How does that happen? You're telling me that this church in a terrible condition is going to have a group of people known as the 144,000 that come out of the church that's in a terrible, lukewarm condition? How does that happen? Who are the 144,000? And you'll want to be here on Sabbath because we are going to go through a biblical exposition of the 144,000 of their characteristics and of, ha of the special work that they have to usher in the second coming of Christ. 
So you want to be here Sabbath. I'm just kind of giving you, or I'm wetting your appetite a little bit. But here we are. Let's just step back again. We look at these three sevens. You have the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. And we come to the end of the churches. We come to the seventh church. We see God's judgment hour church is in a terrible condition. But then we get some hope when we come to the seven seals and we say, wow, praise the Lord, out of God's last day church, the 144,000, the 144,000 arise from that church. How did that happen? That, the question is answered in the seven trumpets. You come to the seven trumpets And as you come to the end of the sixth trumpet, there is an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And that interlude is found in Revelation chapter 10 and 11. And we're going to go through this in more detail tomorrow night. Because Revelation chapter 10 describes the rise of the second advent movement, specifically raised up by God with a little book that has been opened that had been sealed. And I'll tell you what that is tomorrow night. But this second advent movement is raised up in the 1840s by God as His last day church to raise up the 144,000. So you come to the end of the seven churches and you say, oh my, God's judgment our church is in a terrible condition. And oh my, that is us. We are that church. But then when we look at the seven seals, we say, well, praise the Lord. At least I know that from that church that is in a bad condition, God will raise up His 144,000. And then when you come to the seven trumpets, God shows that the way He raises up His 144,000 is through raising up a special movement. The second Advent movement. And my brothers and sisters, that is the movement that we are part of. So you know what that means? That means that God has designed for each one of us here who are part of the Second Advent Movement to be among the 144,000. And based on that, with that understanding, that should change the way we think about how we live our lives. We are God's Second Advent Movement. It is His purpose to take us from being in our lukewarm, Laodicean condition to be His special Second Advent Movement people that are the 144,000. And when you look at this Second Advent Movement, you come to the end of Revelation chapter 10, and you see that there was a bitter disappointment. But at the end of that, God says in verse 11, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Which means, after the bitter disappointment of 1844, you have a prophetic message, and that prophetic message is known as the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. So then, once you come through Revelation 10 and 11, and we'll talk a little bit more about chapter 11 tomorrow night, 
that's the end of the first half of the book. And you look at history, which takes you from the time of Christ to the second coming, and you get an idea, okay, there's seven churches, there's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, and in the churches we see the condition of God's church all the way from the first century to the second coming. And in the seals, you see how God's people were persecuted by the powers that Satan used from the first century all the way to the second coming. And then in the seven trumpets, you see, okay, I see that in the history from the first century down to the coming of Christ, that God actually poured out judgments on the persecuting powers. And in addition to all of this, I see the condition of God's people just before he comes in the seven churches. I see that God raises up a special group of people known as the 144,000 from the seals. And I see that he does so from the second advent movement as I come to the end of the trumpets. Now that gives you a picture from the first century to the second coming. And then you come to Revelation chapter 12, which is arguably the most important chapter in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12 shows us that, hey, you know why there's this whole struggle with the churches and the seals and the trumpets and God's people are being persecuted and then they come to the end just before the second coming and they're in a Laodicean condition? Well, Revelation 12 shows us that there is a great controversy between Christ and Satan. That is why Satan persecuted the saints during the centuries between when Christ was here and when he will come again. And that is why Satan has gotten God's last day people to be in such a lukewarm condition. Because there's this war, this controversy between Christ and Satan. And you must realize that we as God's people are right in the middle of that conflict. And Satan, he looks at Christ and he says, hey Christ, you see your people, your professed Adventists here on this earth? You're, you're the one, I don't have to tell you this, you're the one that's telling them they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Is that what it means to be a Christian? Well, they're really making you look good, Christ, aren't they? And you know, Satan does that. He says that to Christ. And Ellen White actually says in the book Great Controversy, around page 489, that if God's people could see what Satan does to Christ every time we fall into sin, we would never want to fall into sin again. And so Revelation chapter 12 shows us that there's this great controversy struggle between Christ and Satan. And then in Revelation chapter 13, which we're going to talk about Wednesday night, Revelation chapter 13 shows the power that Satan works through to deceive nearly the whole world with the exception of the remnant, which is described at the very end of Revelation chapter 12. You will have a remnant which keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. But Revelation 13 shows that Satan, through the power that he uses in chapter 13 and also described in chapter 17, deceives nearly the whole world at the end of time. And you'll want to be here Wednesday night because we will talk about how to avoid that deception. 
Then when you come to Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14 is a chapter of victory, finally. The first 11 chapters, you see this struggle taking place. And in chapter 12, you have the great controversy theme. And in chapter 13, you see the power that Satan is working through. But in Revelation 14, you see in the first five verses, God's people victorious, standing on Mount Zion. And that's where I want to be someday soon. Amen? And in Revelation 14, you see the 144,000 in the first five verses. We'll go through it again on Sabbath. But you see in verses 6 through 12, the three angels' messages that prepare the 144,000. And then in the last part of the chapter, you see the harvest. So that is a scene of victory. And then, to wrap up, just to look at the final picture here of Revelation, after you see the scene of victory, you see that in Revelation 13, Satan deceives nearly the whole world. Revelation 14, you see that God has a people that are victorious, that will stand on Mount Zion. And then in Revelation chapters 15 and 16, you see the pouring out of the seven last plagues. And you know, when you read the seven last plagues, it's not a pretty picture. It describes God pouring out His wrath without mixture. You know, when you study the Bible, you you see that God will pour out His wrath, but up until the seven last plagues, throughout history, He has always mingled mercy with judgment. Yes, there have been judgments. And yes, they have been terrible. But nothing has ever been like what you will see in the seven last plagues. And people read that and they're like, whoa, how could God be so harsh? What is God doing? Well, then Revelation 17, and we'll talk about this again Wednesday night. Revelation 17 shows us why God could judge Babylon. Because Babylon was guilty of the blood of all the saints. All the persecuted saints throughout history from the first century onward. Babylon was guilty of the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And so God is saying, look, they persecuted me in the person of my saints. And they wouldn't give that up. I had to pour out my judgments on them. Furthermore, when you come to Revelation 18, God says, look, I gave Babylon every chance to repent. Specifically, Revelation 18 describes this angel coming down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with its glory and the message is Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become the habitation of devils and has become the the hold of every uh, unclean spirit. Come out of her. Come out of Babylon so that you don't receive her plagues. And this isn't just a narrow message. It's a message that lightens the earth with its glory so that anyone who ends up receiving the outpouring of the plagues had no excuse. You see that? God gave a message to the world to come out of her. And those who stayed in her said, I'm going to stay in here. That's what I want. I'm rejecting Christ. I'm staying in here. And then, after you see Revelation 18, which shows us that God did everything He could to save Babylon, then chapters 19 through 22 paint the beautiful picture 
of what it will be like to someday be in heaven. Amen? That's what Revelation looks like. So just as a brief overview, just to describe what we've seen, because admittedly Revelation is more complex than Daniel, you have the three sevens in the first half, the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. And when you come to the end of the seven churches, you say, wow, God's church is in a terrible condition. But then you come to the end of the seals and you say, praise the Lord, the 144,000 come out of God's last day church. And then you come to the end of the trumpets and you see that God raises up the second advent movement to prepare the 144,000 in His last day church. And that is who we are. We are part of that movement. And specifically, God has given the commission to the second advent movement, thou must prophesy again to nations, languages, tongues, and kings. And this is where I want to finish our study for this evening. Because the second advent movement, as I said, has been given this commission to prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And as I said, this is the commission of the three angels' messages. Notice what Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 6, says. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Do you see how that connects to the commission to the second advent movement in Revelation 10, which was prophesied before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings? Here we have the everlasting gospel in Revelation 14.6 to give to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. This is our commission as Seventh-day Adventists. And in verse 7 it says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. This is the first angel's message. And you know, these messages come in their order. They are designed to be given in order but by the end, they are designed to be given together. So the first angel's message is the message of the everlasting gospel. Now let me say something about the gospel. Do you, know how the, do you notice how the first angel's message describes the gospel? It's the everlasting gospel. So you know what that means? The gospel has always been the same. So don't let anybody tell you that the Gospel was different in the Old Testament than it was in the New Testament. They got it, take them to the New Testament and say that the Gospel is everlasting. And when you study it out more carefully, in Daniel chapter 9, it describes the everlasting covenant. And in Hebrews chapter 13, it describes everlasting righteousness. And God made His covenant of righteousness with Abraham in the Old Testament. And Abraham is the father of the faithful. So the bottom line is the Gospel is everlasting. And that is the Gospel that God has given to Seventh-day Adventists to give to the world. It's everlasting. It has never changed. 
It's the gospel that not only gives us forgiveness for our sins, but it's the gospel in which Jesus saves us from our sins and gives us power to obey Him. Forgiveness and cleansing, or justification and sanctification. The everlasting gospel. That's the gospel we have to give to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And you notice that in verse 7, we have the message of the judgment hour. So this message of the gospel, which uplifts the righteousness of Christ, His justifying and sanctifying power in our lives, is important because in the judgment hour, we must have Christ's righteousness in order to be saved. Amen? And notice it says, Worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. You know where that verse is quoting from in the Old Testament? It's from the Sabbath commandment in Exodus chapter 20, which tells us that the Sabbath is a key component of the first angel's message. And it's a key component to the everlasting gospel and the judgment hour message. Now, I think I mentioned this before, but you know, Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 283, that in order for men to keep the Sabbath holy, they must themselves be holy. So you know what that means? The Sabbath reflects our experience with Christ all week long. If you come to Sabbath, and the Sabbath is a big drag, and you can't wait for it to be over so that you can lime with your friends on Saturday night and watch your favorite TV shows that you're thinking about during the sermon because you think the sermon isn't nearly as interesting as your TV programs at, at night. You know what's more important to you then? Your TV shows and your liming and this and that, but not Jesus. But if Jesus is your best and dearest friend, when Sabbath comes, you are thankful that there are no distractions for your time with Jesus. You know, when you are dating someone before you get married, you're trying to find every possible way to spend time with them as much as possible. Shouldn't it be that way with Jesus all week long? And you know, when, you have, when you're with your special someone, and you have that day and you can go out with them and just spend time with them, you're thankful that you don't have any other distractions. That's the way the Sabbath should be. Now, what would it say about your dating relationship or your marriage if you're on a special outing with your special someone, either your girlfriend, your boyfriend, or your husband or your wife, and you're thinking about anything and everything but them, and you can hardly wait for the day to end so that you can get back to what you really enjoy doing. I hope we don't treat Sabbath that way, and I hope we don't treat Jesus that way. Amen? Amen. And the Sabbath message is at the heart of the first angel's message. After the first angel's message, we have the message that Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the wine of the wrath of her fornication is specifically the false teachings of Babylon. And Ellen White tells us specifically that the wine of Babylon specifically is Sunday sacredness and the immortality of the soul, or in other words, you go straight to heaven when you die. 
So God raises up the Advent movement to give the everlasting gospel and to have a clear understanding of the Sabbath message and to, of what happens to people when they die. And then Babylon says, no, the seventh day isn't really the right day. It's actually the first day. And you actually go straight to heaven with, when you die, so it really doesn't matter what you do here on this earth. You're going to go to heaven anyway. And Adventists have a message, no, we have a gospel message that teaches God forgives you for your sins and empowers you to keep his law so that you will stand in the judgment. Babylon says, what judgment? You don't need to worry about the judgment. It doesn't matter what you do. You'll just go to heaven when you die anyway. And then the third angel's message teaches that those who follow the beast and worship the beast and receive his image and the mark in their forehead or in their hand, they will receive the plagues. And we talked about that briefly. And then it closes with verse 12, which we talked about on Sabbath, which says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You see, the third angel's message ties everything together. It has the gospel message encapsulated within the concept of the judgment hour. And it also reminds people, hey, if you follow Babylon, you're going to end up receiving God's plagues. You don't want that. So follow God and keep his commandments through the faith of Jesus and you will be found faithful in the judgment. So that, are, that is what the three angels' messages are in a nutshell. Verses 6 and 7, first angel's message. Verse 8, second angel's message. Verses 9 through 12, third angel's message. And as I close, let me just remind you, as we have looked at the big picture of Revelation, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, at each of the end of the sevens, the Laodicean church is the judgment hour church. Yes, they are in a terrible condition, but God is looking for lukewarm Laodicean Seventh-day Adventists to wake up and proclaim the three angels' messages with power so that there will be a group of people who have the patience of the saints, who keep the commandments of God, and have the faith of Jesus. And that is the group known as the 144,000 that are seen at the end of the seven seals, and we see at the end of the seven trumpets that it is from within the second advent movement that this message of the three angels is preached, which prepares the 144,000. And that is what God wants each one of you to be part of. God has raised us up. And yes, we live in a time where it is so easy to be lukewarm, to be Laodicean and to say, yeah, Jesus will come sometime, but I'll just kind of keep doing what I'm doing now. And, you know, I know I don't think about Jesus as much as I should. I know that I'm not praying and studying my Bible as much as I should. I realize that I watch TV three hours at night and have five minutes of devotions, but you know, that's what everybody else in the church is doing too, so I mean, and I know the pastor tells me I, I should be spending more time with Jesus, but I'm just, you know, God is looking for people to say, you know what, it's time to wake up and to make Jesus number one. And to come to a study of the book of Revelation and to see Christ revealed through that book and to say, you know what, Jesus is so wonderful. Jesus is so amazing that I will follow him every step of the way. And when the trials of life come, 
I will, by the grace of God, reflect the character of Jesus and share this message for our time with the world around me so that when he comes, he will look down and say, come home, my brother. Come home, my sister. You have learned how to follow me here on this earth so you can follow me all the way in heaven as well. And that is our purpose and mission for this life. So I challenge you as we go through the rest of this week, we are going to get into some more specific details about the message for our time. Tomorrow night, we are going to get into the specifics of the Second Advent Movement. Yes, we saw some things tonight, but we're going to get into some greater detail about what specifically raised up the Second Advent Movement, what gives, its power, what give, gives the Second Advent Movement its power, and what we should be doing at this time. So at this time, I'm going to ha- close with a word of prayer, and I look forward to seeing all of you again tomorrow evening as we get deeper into the book of Revelation. Amen? So let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message of Revelation. We thank you that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We thank you for how Christ is revealed through the book. And we thank you for how prophecy has identified us as a special group of people with a special message and a special mission and a special identity to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. Forgive us for where we've been in a lukewarm, backslidden state. May we wake up from that condition, and may we go forth by the grace of God, determined to share these messages through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good evening, and I will see you tomorrow night.